Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Monday, August 11th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I found misused gambling metaphors on the first page of The New York Times and the last page of The Wall Street Journal today. Well, I don't know if it was actually the last page. It depends on how you fold your paper. And since only creaky Spanish-American war vets like myself actually get a paper paper, any page other than the front page is irrelevant. But the journal's gambling metaphor was on the back page of the B section, on the sports page. And since the sports page is traditionally the back page of the paper, I'm going to say it was on the front page of the Times, back page of the journal. Let's go to the metaphor. All in. The story by Kevin Clark was about how the Baltimore Ravens and how the Oakland Raiders, also last year Seattle Seahawks, were all in. Everyone's talking about being all in. Dennis Allen, Raiders coach, quote, I think you've got to push the chips all in every year. Problem. All in doesn't mean using all out effort or trying your utmost. It means betting everything you have. So if you lose, which the Raiders probably will do, you've lost everything. You've got nothing. You're out of the game. I don't blame the story. The story is kind of how stupid it is to use as a metaphor for a football team. The story I do blame, and the paper I do blame, is the New York Times, their headline anyway, about casino gambling in New York State. Albany doubling down as casino boom fades. So doubling down in blackjack is you double your bet and you get one card and only one card. And it's a terrible analogy for what's going on with casinos. For one thing, the amount of the bet that New York State is making isn't in any way double what they had made already. Four casinos will open, but there are already nine racetrack casinos out there. And the other thing is you only double down if you're likely to win. The entire point of the article is that casinos are facing worse and worse prospects. Ergo, the words after Albany doubling down, as casino boom fades, those words. There's a good word for what Albany is doing. It's called chasing good money with bad, but it's harder to fit that in a headline, I guess. On the show today, the sport of kings, horse racing, losing a great name track announcer, Tom Durkin, is retiring. We'll talk to him and play some of his great calls. And in the spiel, the bodies of women in the morning shows that discuss them. But first, airstrikes halt ISIS's march to Erbil. If you want to talk about the Middle East, I mean, now's the time to do it. It's like the guy who was a purveyor of clownfish right when Finding Nemo hit the screens. Well, joining us now is Tamara Kaufman-Wittish. She's a senior fellow and the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. She was a deputy assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs from November 09 to January 12 during the Obama administration. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, and uh, now I'm thinking of myself as a clownfish. <laughs> be the clownfish. So what we've heard after these strikes, these airstrikes in Iraq, they seem to be working rather well. The ISIS offense has been halted for now, it even seems. How much to read into that, or is that just the first strikes are going to catch them by surprise, and therefore we should expect the best results early on? 
I think to some extent it was ISIS that had the advantage of surprise last week in their assault on Kurdish-held territory. It wasn't what most people, including apparently the Kurds, were expecting. ISIS had been talking about a drive toward Baghdad and turned north. So I think they had the advantage of surprise at first, and there's no question that the airstrikes have contributed to halting that advance. But I think, you know, surprise is an advantage that fades quickly. Are we to think that there was something about ISIS and the way they conducted themselves that was particularly susceptible to airstrikes? I know they have, for instance, a tank, you know, and you can't really use a tank. It's such a conventional weapon. You can't use that out in the open field if you know airstrikes are going to be in the theater. Or is it more the case that, uh, you know, it's a momentary surprise-oriented gain? You know, I think there are good questions about whether the Kurdish Peshmerga forces found themselves a little bit outgunned. Certainly in the last number of years, the main task for the Kurds has been guarding checkpoints. They haven't had to engage in real combat operations in quite a while, not since the 1990s. And they don't have a lot of armor. Um, They may have, you know, a little bit of armored vehicles and stuff like that. So ISIS perhaps started this confrontation a little uh, on the heavier side in terms of the military balance. But yes, of course, air power can be very effective at breaking up formations and especially targeting artillery and armored vehicles and other things that can allow you to take ground quickly. Kenneth Pollack, writing in Brookings, asked a really good question. How good is ISIS? I mean, they've been sold by some members even of the U.S. Senate as worse than al-Qaeda, more vicious than al-Qaeda, designs on America. I'm not even talking about how much should we fear them, but as a fighting force, how good is ISIS really? What we can say is, number one, they're not huge. (laughs) Uh, Number two, they don't have large armed formations like a conventional military So they can't do major assaults. They have to operate the way an insurgent military operates. But the other thing we can say is that they have a lot of experience. This is a battle-hardened crew Mm -hmm. from their time in Syria, certainly. And, you know, allegedly a number of their commanders come from the former Ba'ath Party and maybe even from Saddam Hussein's former army. So... They would have the hard-won experience of the Iran-Iraq war under their belts as well. Is their viciousness an actual tactical advantage as much as uh, it's a headline grabber and something that we're making a huge deal out of? Oh, it's a huge PR win for them, of course. It also helps them win recruits because those lost souls around the Muslim world who are looking for a jihadi campaign to join are going to join one that looks like it's successful, that it's winning battles, that it is doing the work that that jihadi ideology prescribes. And ISIS looks like a very successful uh, jihadi group right now. So it's great for recruiting, and it intimidates the enemy. It might well be at least some part of why we saw ISIS able to move so quickly uh, in the face of uh, not very fierce resistance from the Iraqi army earlier this this summer. Now, off the field of battle, there are machinations going on with the Iraqi government, the composition thereof, that could affect things greatly. Can you update us on that? Just today, the Iraqi president appointed somebody to be the next prime minister and form the next government. That somebody is not Nouri al-Maliki, the two-time prime minister who is 
the caretaker in had been wrangling very hard for a third term. Instead, President Massoum gave uh, authority to Haider al-Abadi uh, to form the next government. Haider al-Abadi is also a Shia. He's from the same Iraqi National Alliance, which is a coalition of Shia parties that Maliki is from. But he's not from Maliki's party, and he is considered the sort of alternative around which Shia opponents of Maliki have united. Uh-huh. And is he really good? Do you know him, or is he sort of AOM, anyone other than Maliki? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure uh, what, wh- how high we want to set the bar for really good Iraqi politicians. <laughs> uh, there was certainly a degree of anyone but Maliki going on um, in the Iraqi parliament over the, the period since the elections, because Maliki had demonstrated a willingness to throw just about everyone uh, under the bridge for the sake of staying in power. So he even managed to alienate a lot of the Shia politicians who had previously uh, allied behind him. I want to ask you one question about uh, President Obama's stated justification for this, and he talked about helping the refugees who were uh, caught in between the lines. And while that's true, it does raise the specter of what about all the other refugees you don't help? So when you were a hand in the State Department, is that the sort of thing you'd worry about making a statement over? Or maybe you say, why not help more refugees? I would say that given Obama's track record of such consistent resistance to using humanitarian logic to get pulled into the Syrian civil conflict, it is much easier to see his justification in this context as very narrow, very isolated. You know, whether it's Syria or the Congo, he said repeatedly the U.S. cannot go around, you know, using military force to rescue people all over the world. So I I think against that backdrop, this instance doesn't necessarily lead down a slippery slope. That's true, but Boko Haram would be another counterexample. So there are times when he intervenes militarily and times when he doesn't, and it would seem that a major factor, as it should be, is what kind of opposition you're going to get. And another major factor is what's the view of the host government where you'd be conducting those operations. And in both those cases, I think we had a local government that was really looking for American support and engagement. Tamara kaufman Wittes, Senior Fellow, Director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Like Dory, with Nemo, she led us through these treacherous waters safely. Thank I you. just keep swimming. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sea. In Saratoga, New York, at the end of this month, Tom Durkin, the famed racetrack announcer, will call his final race. What Vin Scully is to baseball or what Marv Albert is to basketball, Durkin is to horse racing. Widely regarded as the best in the business and inspiration for other announcers and just plain fun to listen to. As he enters the home stretch, I thought it would be great to have Tom Durkin on the gist. Tom, thanks for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Is calling a horse race closer to calling, I won't even say baseball, that sport's so slow, basketball, or is it closer to calling a livestock auction? <laughs> no, it's not quite like an auction uh, because there are a, a lot of moving parts. And it's not like baseball because uh, it's very intense. Uh, a race might be as short as a minute, 
and you've got to get a beginning, a middle, and an end there. So you might have to talk as fast as an auctioneer, but you've got to get plot and narrative in there, in there somehow. So how do you negotiate the balance between preparation and being in the moment and letting the moment of uh, a great race uh, overwhelm you? Well, what you have to do is cram a lot of stuff into your subconscious, like the plot lines you want to you know, have figured out ahead of time, especially for a big race, mm-hmm. even words that you might want to say. Mm-hmm. And you just jam those in. I have a book that's uh, God would take an, over an hour to read from front to back with just words and thoughts and concepts. And so you do that, and then you have to have those horses memorized backwards and forwards. So when you say of this book of words, do you mean specific words for specific horses, or do you say, you know what, I'm going to start trying out the verb gamely, or instead of roaring back, I'm going to try to say thundering back? How does the book of words work? Sure. Hold on. I'm going to grab it right now for you. And... All right. And open to a a, a page, and uh, let's see, what do we have here? Uh, here's words for horses going head-to-head. They can grapple, bandy, spar, confront, tackle. Uh, when they're outside horses, they can be hovering, perched, or floating. Oh. When they're behind horses, they can be covered up, drafting in behind. Here's words for uh, horses that are, are brave, unwavering, obstinate, single-minded, tenacious, fiercely determined, unyielding, stubborn, digging in, digging down, gamely, bravely, courageously, stoutly, uh, stout-hearted, grimly holding on, grudgingly, clinging, all out, all heart. Uh, listen, i got to do a little worker. Do it, yeah. On the track for the first race, no changes, nine minutes to post. There we go. That was awesome. <laughs> so what's the difference between a, ho- a horse that's perched and a horse that's hovering? Would that ju- Are they interchangeable, or does one seem... Yeah, yeah, or they could be probing sometimes, or, uh, you know, floating means it uh, connotates that they're kind of going pretty easily. Hovering kind of gives the connotation that they're really ready to go, and perched is uh, somewhere in between there. That's right. Are there horses who that you're just happy you'll never have to say their names again? Like Yakahika Mikadola? <laughs> like that one. Or Flat Fleet Feet. Uh-huh. I got the guy that named the Flat Fleet Feet. I got him good one time. Uh, it was a big race here called the Test Stakes for three old fillies here at Saratoga. So I was able to say Flat Fleet Fleet flies four furlongs and 44 and four. <laughs> Two horses who, um, sorry, I'll never hear you say again, are R and Do Re Mi Fa So La Ti Do. In the middle of the track is R. Coming down to the final 16th, it is Stan Pat in front. Arg! 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 In front, coming down to the wire. They're coming to the finish, and it's all. Arg! They're in the final furlong. It's Do Re Mi Fa Sol La Ti. Do. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to play it straight, or you know? Just hit the hit the lob pitch out of the ballpark. Uh-huh. So, you know. But but you nailed it. I mean, I think that you're you're pitch perfect, literally on that. But then the the second time the horse came around it was a big stake race down at Belmont Park, and I had bronchitis, and it was do re mi fa sol la ti. So we can that. That was that was the end of do re mi fa sol la ti as far as uh, being expressed musically. So the most exciting race, I, I think I know the answer because I've heard you ask this before. People think it's a triple crown race or easy go or Sunday silence, but it was the 1989 Hamiltonian, right? Yeah, it was the calling trotting races at the Meadowlands, and uh, this was the Hamiltonian, the Kentucky Derby of Harness Racing. 
and it came down to uh, two horses. You have to win several heats to win the Hamiltonian. And it was two horses, and they wound up in a dead heat. Uh, astronomical odds, you couldn't even put odds on it. I mean, it was uh, an unbelievable. First of all, that just a two horses would finish in a dead heat, but let alone the most important race in all of harness racing, it was, uh, you know, off the charts. Park Avenue Joe digging in gamely. Probe pokes ahead in front. Probe on the outside. Park Avenue Joe comes roaring back. A relentless drive to the wire. Park Avenue Joe. Probe. Here's the finish. Too close to call. Too close to call. Park Avenue Joe and Probe were a nose apart on the finish line. As we say goodbye to you, I want to ask you about one aspect. I thought it was pretty brave because you begged off uh, the Triple Crown races. I think you called 30 in a row, and citing stress in a press release, you uh, stopped doing them. And then later, in a very telling uh, piece that Joe Drape in the Times wrote, you talked about the, the anxiety you experienced and even going to a hypnotist. And at the time, you said, I'm disappointed in myself. It was a battle of nerves that I lost at the racetrack you don't like to lose. Have you come to think of it differently? Not really. No, I mean, that's, uh, I tried everything I could, you know, and, and to me, the simple solution was just to stop doing it. And I'm happy with that decision. I, and I can't see myself doing that at all anymore. And retiring from the Triple Crown, but continuing on with Saratoga and the other meets, did that alleviate the anxiety? The anxiety was only about those three huge races? Pretty much. I mean, the, the stress is here. I mean, I've got plenty of big races to call here, the Travers and the Whitney and all sorts of big races. Every at Saratoga, there's big races almost every day, but it's not the level, you know, that that a Kentucky Derby can uh, can play with you. I mean, I mean, I used to, even when someone would mention the word words Breeders' Cup, which I did for 23 years, mm-hmm. <laughs> someone would mention those words, I could feel a rush of acid coming to my stomach. It was just, you know, I did it, and that's that. When you were 29 years old, you were a contestant on the Match Game. You won. <laughs> We've played a little match game here. This is going to be the final round where you try to match the celebrities. And the clue is man of. Man of blank. I went around the Slate office. Jim, Jimmy J. Dynamite Walker was not here, but some Slate yeah, writers goodness. were. He cost me $10,000. <laughs> man of blank. La Mancha. Miriam, man of blank. Steel. Man of blank. The match. Yeah, I, w- I would come down to Man of Steel or Man of La Mancha. Hold on, three minutes to post. But uh, I will say Man of Steel. Here, here are the three choices: the one hundred dollar answer, Man of Steel, mm-hmm. Man of the Match was the second one, mm. and Man of La Mancha was indeed the. I was in answer. Man of La Mancha. I played the, the <laughs> not the <laughs> not the Richard Kiley part. I was added not singing part before oh. my. Do re mi fa sol So, uh, who, uh, what's the, what's, what, so what's my prize? You actually win Sancho Panza's donkey, but you have to call oh. it in a race. <laughs> I am I Don Quixote, the man. <laughs> the versatile, the multi-talented, the soniferous Tom Durkin. Thanks so much, Tom. Okay, Mike. Thank you very much. I am I Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha. My destiny calls and I go And the wild winds of fortune Will carry me onward Oh, whithersoever they blow And now the spiel. 
I'd like to talk about women's body issues. I clearly am the most qualified to talk about women's body issues. Women want me talking about body issues. They need me talking about body issues. There has been a groundswell, a veritable uprising demanding that I, Mike Pesca, non-fashionista, in fact, a bit of a fashion no-sir, be the one to discuss women's body issues. So I will transform into the role of body ombudsman. It is a role I accept. And anyway, maybe you were searching for the perfect choice for Unfollow a Man Friday. That could be me. Have you heard it? It's the song of the summer. It's sung by a 20-year-old from Massachusetts named Megan Trainer, and it's all about the bass. So aside from the fact that the song actually doesn't have that much bass, it's catchy, it's swinging, it has a video highly informed by Cotton Candy, and you guys, it's body positive. I know that because Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show told me. It's a great song. You know, it has kind of that retro feel, but a little bit of an island beat, but it also has this positive message. Morning news shows love, love, love this topic, body image, specifically having a positive body image. Remember Miss Indiana? She sparked a convo. Smith, Indiana may not have won the Miss USA contest, but she was certainly all the buzz, setting Twitter on fire, sparking a conversation about body image in ABC's Juju Chang. So you can't see the pictures of this very beautiful woman decidedly not spilling out of her bikini. Miss Indiana was quite thin. Interviews revealed she was a size 4, but because most of the other contestants were a size 2 or a size 0, she's comparatively large. And then there's the speech that actress Sarah Baker made on the TV show Louie. Let's see how I could define it, but couch it in a number of ridiculous qualifiers. How about, um, it's the so-called fat girl rant that some women are calling brilliant. That sucked. Let's just let ABC's Good Morning America say it. It's the seven-minute so-called fat girl rant that some women are calling brilliant. One commonality among all these pieces are they're fueled by so-called controversy. But the controversy is one asinine critic calling Melissa McCarthy a hippo or Twitter comments. Yeah, Twitter comments are always good when you need a contrast. Like when you use a black belt to break up a monochrome outfit. See, I told you I get image. But there's another semi-hilarious, semi-tragic side to these stories. They're on the morning shows, because the average viewer of a morning show is a woman, and the average dress size of an American woman is 14. So obviously there is an audience for these talks. But mediating these conversations are a veritable cadre of the thinnest interlocutors you've ever seen. Almost all of the anchors on morning TV are thin, quite thin, in fact. So you have this spectacle of the lovely, talented, qualified, and not at all undeserving to be there, but wraith-like TV journalist patting the big girl on her back saying, great message, sister. All the women on TV I've heard discussing this topic, well, Savannah Guthrie's going on maternity leave tomorrow, but all the other female TV newscasters who've been talking about body positivity are themselves very thin women. Abby Boudreaux, the Good Morning America reporter who noted this. Baker, who does not usually select roles based on her body type, says this time it was a good choice. You should see her website while bending down to hold an adorable baby. She wears a tank top exposing a very flat that midriff. So what's the stronger message? On the one hand, you have the occasional song 
or a single episode of a niche comedy on cable or the non-winner in a no longer relevant beauty contest who actually is quite thin versus every lady you ever see on morning TV dressed in a flawless size zero or two dress with flawless makeup and fatless physiques. I want to be clear. All of the newscasters I'm talking about individually, they're all very talented. They're smart. They're often smarter than the material they're asked to cover. But for the producers of the shows to book segment after segment on body image and then have less diversity of bodies in any field that I could think of other than fashion model is hypocritical. Now, I guess you could argue that's what viewers want to see. I guess you could argue TV's a visual medium and looks are important. I'm sure these are the arguments put forth by the executive producers of the morning shows. And they are a guy named Chris Licht at CBS. NBC just named a guy named Jamie Horowitz to run the Today Show. He takes over for Don Nash. Tom Sabrowski at Good Morning America. And the guys at CNN. And the guy who executive produces Morning Joe. Maybe that's a thing. But I am not your morning show executive producer, ombudsman. I stick to being body ombudsman. You gotta play to my strengths. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcast. She puts up a torrid fraction through half a mile at 45 and 3. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is starting to come alive, gobbling up the turf with every stride. Post a review in iTunes showing his best stride late. Facebook.com slash Slate Gist fights on nearing the home stretch. Twitter feed Slate Gist working his way between horses at a spine-tingling stretch drive as you sign up for the daily newsletter. Sign up for the daily newsletter is really turning on the gas. That's at slate.com slash gist email. But to his outside is email the gist at slate.com. And now roaring to the front of the pack, it's Listen in SoundCloud. Battling back is Listen in iTunes. SoundCloud goes to the whip, but Calvin Burrell is asking Listen in iTunes for everything he has. But SoundCloud will not go away. These two services bravely, gamely battling the final furlong. And watch this. In a four-wide sweep, it's email the gist at slate.com. Charging hard, email the gist at slate.com. Listen in iTunes, email the gist at slate.com. Email the gist at slate.com is gonna take it. Denying listen in iTunes the crown at a heartbreaking half length. It's email the gist at slate.com. Listen in iTunes in second and making a late move for third. It's thanks for listening.